You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Justice for me is the practical name of charity, of love, if you will. But as we've seen the word charity so sentimentalized, individualized, individual acts of niceness toward nice people, it lost its power. Uh, charity without justice is sentimentality. It, it gives you a positive self-image, but it does nothing for the world, nothing for the neighbor, nothing for the other. This podcast explores the mystery of relatedness as an organizing principle of the universe and of our lives. We're trying to catch a glimpse of connections beyond color, continent, country, or kinship. And we're going to do this through science, mysticism, spirituality, and the creative arts. I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes. And this is The Cosmic We. We're honored to have Father Richard Rohr with us today. Many of uh, you are familiar with the life and the work of this great spiritual teacher. But for those who are unfamiliar with his work, Father Richard is a Franciscan priest ordained to the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church in 1970. In 2011, PBS called him one of the most popular spirituality authors and speakers in the world. He founded the Center for Action and Contemplation, a school for prophets engaged in the work of justice and spiritual connections to the divine through contemplation and the study of mystics through the ages. But here, here's what's important to me. Here's what drew me to the work of the center. I mean, if you told me a few years ago that I would make the spiritual journey from a UCC church in New England to speaking in tongue and baptism in the spirit during tent meetings in Texas to my current work with Father Richard, I wouldn't have believed it. What drew me to Father Richard was his ecumenical teaching, his witness to deep wisdom, of Christian mysticism. Father Richard teaches how God's grace guides us to our birthright as beings infused with divine love. He's the author of too many books to name. The most recent, The Universal Christ, The Wisdom Pad, Just This and Falling Upward. Read a few of them, it'll change your life. Welcome to the Cosmic We, Father Richard. We know each other, but you may not have formally met my co-host, Dr. Donnie Bryant. Donnie, please say a few words to uh, Father Richard. Father Richard, this is uh, probably one of the greatest honors that I've had to, uh, to meet you in person. As we start this conversation, I, I want to say that your work, um, your witness, um, your scholarship, uh, but also your your heart has truly influenced my ministry, myself as a person, my family. Much of my theology has evolved and has been influenced directly through your work, not just your theological work, but also your work with the Enneagram, um, you being a catalyst for so many people. And uh, so as I started my journey to uh, of self-discovery, um, your work has been truly influential there. So I just want to say thank you and what an honor and privilege it is to to be here with you. Well, you're welcome. My, you make my day. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your trust. Yeah. Uh, if anything I've said is helpful to a man and woman like you two, all I can do is rejoice. And And we're living in a time where this is possible. Yes. Yeah. And where even the Pope agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> you you recently saw the Pope, didn't you? <laughs> yes. In June, he invited me. It's still, I have to pinch myself that, that I talked to him in a, you know, closed room, just the two of us. It was wonderful. He's a very loving person, very empathetic. Yeah. So thank you. To me, not many people have that privilege of sitting down with, with the Pope. I mean, 
I'm sure much of the conversation was private, but is there anything you could share with us that was uh, that you're able to share about that meeting that could really uh, bless some of our some of our listeners? You know, he, he humbly said at the beginning, I don't speak English very well, but I can listen to you very well. I'll just be following your lips. And you could tell he was intensely. And whenever I'd share something like the Pentecostal part of my life, or he'd just chime in, keep doing it, keep saying it, keep teaching it. <laughs> I think it was a Catholic boy's dream. Oh, yes. To, to have a Pope. Wow. wow. Our big father figure tell you that what you were doing was good. It was really... I still have to pinch myself that it happened. Right. And I took right. a little delegation with me, a few from here at the CAC. And then they all came in and they got to talk to him. And I think part of it is, you know, he's being persecuted very much by the Catholic right. He knew I had been much more in my early days, but persecuted also. So there's something that draws you together when you've both been through the same kind of trials and tried to keep a positive, faith-filled attitude. And so I think we were drawn to one another. He invited me, which still blows my mind. How did you become a Franciscan? Oh, <laughs> well, I was born in Kansas. Boring, flat Kansas. And in the eighth grade, I read a life called The Perfect Joy of St. Francis. Ah. Uh, it was a rather romantic biography, but still beautiful. And it's hard to believe that someone would read that and say, well, I would not say, I want to be like him. And that's what happened in my mind. And then very soon after, two brown-robed friars came to our parish to preach. And I was in awe. <laughs> they gave me an address to write to, and that made all the difference. I wrote, and that sent me off to the Franciscan Seminary, a decision I never have regretted. Father Richard, you know, as you as you talk about that experience, you know, one of your, I would say, landmark works is is your book, The Universal Christ. You mentioned your Pentecostal history, and uh, both Barbara and I have had uh, a history in that movement also, so we share that in common. But your work, yeah, the, your work, The Universal Christ, has uh, really opened up tremendously my understanding of the blueprint, the Christ blueprint. For those who have not digested the book, I would love to hear your summary of the thesis behind the book of, you know, the, the themes that you really wanted um, the readers to really gather from, from this work. And this is truly, from my perspective, a transformational book. It's a book that everyone in the world should read. Uh, and I and I say that with great humility. It's a tremendous book. It's a book that I think will, you know, stand the test of time. Could you share with us your purpose in writing The Universal Christ? You know, what I'm first going to say will sound like, well, this is some new trendy idea. And the irony is the notion of Christ as an archetype for history for the human journey, for the cosmic story, is, is, goes back to the fathers of the church in the first four centuries. In fact, they knew it more than we do. It was taught consistently. Well, not consistently, but where it was taught was more in the Eastern church. Now, as you know, uh, the Roman Church is called the Western Church, and the church based in Constantinople today, Istanbul, was the Eastern Church. And we not so happily separated in the year 1054. 
So when you good Protestants came along, all you had to react to was the Roman church at best, you know? And we were only half a piece of the pie. <laughs> and, and two of the pieces that were most missing was the contemplative piece, which was taught better in the Eastern church, and the cosmic global notion of salvation. So with that as a little preface, it comes down to distinguishing between Jesus and Christ. And I, I start somewhere in the book saying, Christ is not Jesus' last name, as a lot of us think. Huh? But Christ is a title uh, revealing universal truth. He revealed the Christ. He became the Christ. But he was, first of all, Jesus. Jesus is the personal, relational manifestation of the mystery, and Christ is the global universal. And if we don't discover this soon, especially as we just sent out a new telescope last month, that we're talking about something that's universal. And, uh, as soon as they, if they, I don't know, discover life on other planets, uh, a lot of Christians are going to say, well, did Jesus save them? What did Jesus have to do with them? And we're suddenly in with a huge problem. So this issue is very important that you and I, going back to the earliest creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, we believe in Jesus and Christ. Huh? Two affirmations. And one is personal, the other is universal. If you have both, you have the potential to have a very healthy religion. We wouldn't have had all this trouble with diversity, for example, that you have suffered so much from if we would have recognized that the Christ was a universal truth and had nothing to do with sectarian anything. <laughs> right. And because we didn't get that straight, we've had trouble with diversity for 2,000 years. Very sad to say. So we got a lot of catching up to do. a lot of people who don't even understand what the power is in contemplation. I mean, you really trust this path of contemplation. Um, I'm going to just give you something you said. You said, one can't really look at life and society from an egoless position except through the lens of prayer, particularly in the emptying form of prayer that we call contemplation. Could you just say a little bit more about that? You know, the word contemplation first emerges among the desert fathers and mothers in the first centuries, after Christians start realizing that the, the mainline Christianity is, has, is so watered down already. And they create the word contemplation to, to be really a counterpart to the word prayer, or, or a synonym for the word prayer, where it means a, an actual change of processing, a change of mind. Paul talks about this, as you know, in several places. But a lot of people pray, I'm sure I did my early life, with my old mind, which was my American mind, my white boy mind, my uh, Catholic mind, all of which added little bits of truth, but they weren't the universal mind. And that's what contemplation is, where you access the whole. Now that's the way the mystics think. They think in terms of the whole, 
not the part. And we are still fighting over the parts. My part's better than your part. <laughs> what a waste of time. Yeah. An absolute waste of time. Because once we identify with the part instead of the whole, we're set up for a very, really uh, painful history of violence, judgment, anger, trying to prove that our part's better than your part. And every one of our groups did it. Now, we Catholics had the right word. As you know, Catholic means universal. Yes. But I said that to the Pope. I said, how did we universalists get it so wrong? <laughs> he just laughed, you know, <laughs> that we became uh, protectors of a part that was more Roman, more European, more white. And we pushed that as if it was Catholicism. It's falling apart at a at a massive scale right now. It certainly is. And you mentioned the trouble that we're having with diversity, not just in the nation, but in the world. Um, why do you care so much about justice? Where does that come from, Father Richard? Justice for me is the practical name of charity, of love, if you will. But as we've seen the word charity, love, so sentimentalized, individualized, individual acts of niceness toward nice people. <laughs> it, it just <laughs> it lost its power. Uh, charity without justice is sentimentality. And that's not an exaggeration. It, it gives you a positive self-image, but it does nothing for the world, nothing for the neighbor, nothing for the other. And the people can't see that. It's just astounding to me. Uh, charity is fashioning your own positive, superior image. I'm charitable. I give money at Thanksgiving or whatever. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That's not going to change the world in the least because it affirms my group as the charitable ones and the others as the needy ones who we wish would stop needing <laughs> and be like us. To follow up, there are a lot of people who share your views, but they're afraid to speak out. I mean, most dominant culture people are uncomfortable with the issue of race. They don't know how to talk about it. And you don't seem to be uncomfortable just speaking out of your heart about a very difficult issue. Talk about how you're able to do that, and perhaps it'll help others to do it also. Well, I, I don't know how much, well, you probably do, or Donnie does, but people know about Franciscanism. Francis always identified with the minority with the excluded. I went to Assisi after Rome last month, and the little church that he rebuilt was the little church of the leper colony. And he immediately went down to those excluded from uptown Assisi and uh, identified with the lepers. So that's always been a part of our tradition. We, we were really a subtext in terms of mainline Catholicism. I was ordained a deacon in 1969. You're always a deacon for one year before you were a priest in the modern era. And the first six months, they sent me out here to New Mexico to work with the Acoma Pueblo. So my first chance at pastoral work and preaching was with a minority. And then the next six months was at a black parish in Dayton, Ohio, Resurrection Parish. Huh. For me, this little white boy, 
I'm preaching to black people every Sunday. (laughs) What do I have to say to them? Well, I'll tell you, it was very easy. You know why? Because they affirm the preacher. White people don't do that. They just sit there and say nothing. You don't know whether they're listening. (laughs) Well, the black people in Resurrection Parish, we became good friends because they would just amen, amen. They were Catholics, but they hadn't lost their black intuition. Is that the word? I don't know. Yes, yes. So my, my starting in ministry was outside the mainstream. And then you realize how the mainstream isn't very main. It's just dominant. And that's different. So that, that got me off to a great start. And then the Pentecostal experience with those young boys happened the next year after I had become a priest. And I said, well, what happened to this? This beautiful polyphonic singing in tongues that we'd sometimes go 20 minutes and people mm. would come and peek in the door of this <laughs> high school gymnasium and said, and they're Catholics. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they couldn't believe. Uh, so that, again, for me, legitimated the margins instead of the so-called center. In a lot of your work, Father Richard, you, you speak to... Um, this this concept of of union or unitive uh, oneness in some of your work, I, I, and maybe it was a talk that I heard some years ago. You had stated that what it means to be Christian is to be able to see the Christ in everything or everyone. And I found that to be such a powerful, powerful statement. When you talk about you know how do we get away from seeing the other as the other and beginning to see us in the other, right? Seeing the connection, the oneness. And uh, there seems to be a a common theme in a lot of your work that deals with oneness and um, getting away from uh, this dualistic way of thinking and seeing and perceiving the world. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because I found that to be very helpful as as I am part of a multi- ethnic and multicultural community, even multi-denominational community, in that particular concept of seeing the kinship, seeing someone as family, as one, as connected versus as, you know, something else different. When you stop seeing Christ in others, really in everything, you the sad price you pay is you can't see Christ in yourself. Mm. I mean, you know this better than I, how many Christian racists, you you hear them talk or see them operate, and you want to say, that man really hates himself, doesn't he? But it never Mm. occurs to him how much he hates himself. He's projected all of his hatred onto people of other races or other religions. Uh, these guys in Georgia who just chased down this young black man out jogging, you know? What made them think he was their problem? (laughs) So either you see God in everything, or you end up not seeing God in anything. And the big price is you can't see God in yourself, which is the whole point to recognize that you Hmm. are an image of God, despite all of your sins, failures, limitations. That isn't the issue. Christianity is not a moral matter of moral perfection. You you never get there. I'm almost 80, and I'm not close. (laughs) (laughs) None of us are. None of us are. It's a mystical matter. And when I say mystical, I mean, you use the word at the beginning, a unitive matter. It sees everything in holes. It sees everything connected. First, it sees the connection before the disconnection. 
Now, Americans tend to see the disconnection. And when you start with that, you never get back to the connection. You know, it's even on our coins, e pluribus unum. I had to study Latin mm. for six years. <laughs> okay. out so did of, I. <laughs> out of many, one. Oh, we we have it on the one. penny, and we, <laughs> and we don't have it in the human mind. Mm. Out of many, God has made one. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avitt, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. Not being able to see God in others or in yourself, I think is what Oscar Romero was referring to. Um, Let me just share this little quote with you. He says, I will not tire of declaring that if we really want an effective end to violence, we must remove the violence that lies at the root, social injustice and repression. That it's the lack of loving and seeing Christ in one another that is the root of structural violence. Uh, What do you think about that? It sounds so simple that I'll bet even some people who just heard you say it say, oh yeah, oh yeah. But (laughs) it's not any living recognition. It has to be a heartfelt, body-felt, eye-seen, tasted, recognition that we all are the many parts of the body. And Paul goes to great lengths to teach this. And and Jesus gives us what we call the Eucharist to experience it. But we Catholics, we even use the Mass, the Eucharist, to prove who's worthy to go and who isn't worthy to go. When in fact, as Pope Francis says, it's food for the unworthy, which means we're all welcome. Mm. It's not a worthiness contest. This has to be known existentially, to use a postmodern but good word. It can't be known superficially. It has to be known in your very existence. And, And it gets even more ironic. After you've lived a while, you find that it's easier to see in suffering people, in wounded people, in rejected people, than it is in people who think they're normal. (laughs) Mm. At uh, the Nuremberg trials, Adolf Eichmann, I think he either coined the phrase or he got him from Hannah Arendt, the banality of evil. Yes. Yeah. 
and be, because so many of these Nazis were very educated Germans, civil, polite, uh, that evil has to become everyday normal for us to buy it. That's been found in the tradition. Desert fathers and mothers, Thomas Aquinas for us. Uh, the whole philosophical tradition said that that evil to get away with its evil has to disguise itself as good. Yeah. <laughs> That's a universal principle. You wouldn't do evil unless you thought, oh, this is good to keep the white people in control. This is going to mm. help the world. Uh, you've got to tell some big lies. Big lies. What comes to mind, Father Richard, is um, this idea of relinquishing control. Relinquishing control. I actually <laughs> remember seeing a quote from you that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control, right? The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control. So our need to be in control. The way I, I used to teach it, it still will be the same. The opposite of faith is certitude. Yes. Yes, okay. Which amounts to control. And this is the lie, forgive me, I don't mean to be unkind to anybody, but of fundamentalism. It's in love with certitude. It isn't in love with biblical faith. That's it. I'm glad you let's 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 rest there for a while. <laughs> let's, let's, biblical good. faith yeah. unites knowing with not even needing to know because God knows. That's that leads to great humility. And if a person isn't humble, they usually don't have faith. They're just religious. There's something about the faith walk that makes you crave certitude. I mean, you're walking, you're being, <laughs> you're being asked to walk on water. Uh, you know, you're being asked to trust. It's amazing that um, we don't uh, create even more idols than we do in our society because we need to be certain about something. Yeah, and God must understand that. But what God seems to be trying to lead us toward is certain about his love and goodness, not about any idea, not an idea of goodness, an idea of truth. That's what's made us so arrogant, that we think we have the truth in a form of words. What did Jesus say? I am the truth. Mm. Truth is a person personified in uh, the way a human being operates. Mm -hmm. And how does he operate? In an inclusive, loving, universally forgiving way. A Jew who honors everybody else who comes into his life of the other religions, which were quite numerous in Palestine. Everybody wasn't Jewish. And he seems to have no trouble with them. It's really scandalous. Come on, Jesus, learn your theology. You should have trouble with those people, those Syrophoenicians and Roman centurions, <laughs> the eunuch, and where well, you go down the whole list. What that brings to my mind is that um, I've often had students when I was a professor who'd say to me, well, yeah, all that's great. However, we know, if God doesn't know, we know we're not worthy of that love, of God's love. So in order to trust that God loves us, how do you do that when you know you, you're a failed specimen? You, you've done nothing right. Everything you do, even your thoughts, are not within your control. So how, how are we worthy of God's love so we can trust it? What we fail to do, Barbara, is communicate the unique nature of divine love. And ah. let me say two things. Divine love is infinite. Now, I'm told, you've heard me say this, 
the notion of infinity cannot be conceived by the human mind. We return back to adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing. Mm -hmm. St. Therese, one of my favorite Catholic mystics, says God knows all the sciences except one. The only science God does not know is mathematics. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And what she was trying to say was just this. Once you dive into infinity, which is God, any notion of adding, subtracting, meriting, losing, being worthy, it's all a waste of time. God's love is infinite, 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 a concept the human mind cannot form. That is so helpful. It is. It is. The divine notion of perfection is not the exclusion of imperfection, but the inclusion of imperfection. Ah. That's divine love. Human love thinks you have to exclude imperfection to, to love a person. Now, you and I are old enough to know There's just no perfect people around. Absolutely not. They don't (laughs) exist. No. And I've heard the confessions of bishops and priests and monks, and they don't exist. But we've all learned to keep it hidden, our little shadow self, our little secret self. Uh, Yeah, that's the second point. Divine love is includes imperfection, which is what makes it divine love. You and I, without the grace of God, cannot do that. We pay attention to the imperfection. Well, I saw him do that. I heard him say that. Now I've got my reason not to love. So I move myself into a smaller box where I can feel superior and damn the other person. That's what I mean when we say Jesus became the scapegoat, because he knew that the human uh, pattern was scapegoating, always making someone else the problem instead of yourself. Christianity is not about changing other people. It isn't. (laughs) Just stop it. Mm. Stop it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's nice if they do change, but that's God's work. It's about changing yourself. And that never stops. I'm still trying to change myself. (laughs) Your podcast, Another Name for Everything, I believe in one of the episodes, you, you talk about love as givenness. Givenness. You talked about love as a concept of one-way flow. And you even likened love to the to forgiveness. You juxtapose forgiveness and givenness. And I want you to really talk about that idea because, you know, part of our journey of healing and wholeness has to do with the ability to forgive and the ability to understand love in this concept of one-way givenness. Give us a little bit more about that from, uh, from your perspective. Paul says in one of his letters, The yes was always found in Christ. The yes to reality. If we could, none of us can, but if we could maintain a daily yes, even though that doesn't mean you don't recognize injustice, stand against it, but you don't let your heart become hardened and your mind become rigid in its judgments. So you're right. Love is always a a yes. Even though you might see uh, little problems, you don't let it stop the yes. That uh, I find in my old age that uh, I've eventually, and this might sound like poetry, but I've eventually had to forgive everything. Everything, everything. Mm. Me, my parents, Mm. 
the Catholic Church, the United States of America. And once you stop expecting it, or needing it, or demanding that it be perfect, you're much happier to begin with. You really are. You're, you're doing yourself a favor. But it's still not easy to do. And apart from the, the life of God, the grace of God flowing through you, which is why to me the notion of God as Trinity is so important. God as flow, the flow of relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Without that flow, you have to daily say yes to, uh, you'll get trapped in the negatives. We all do, we all will. I don't think there's any other way. Recently, uh, Father Richard, you've reaffirmed the purpose of the Living School which I think of as the throbbing heart center of the Center for Action and Contemplation. And you redefined it as a school for prophets. What does that mean? People are gonna be walking around in long robes with staffs? What's going on? <laughs> well, boy, is that a worthwhile question. Neither Judaism itself, nor Catholicism, nor Protestantism ever really understood the deep, function of a prophet. The Jews found it hard to hear the prophets. You know why? They were always criticizing Judaism. Mm. <laughs> Any That's guys that are critical of your own group you don't like. We Catholics didn't hear the prophets because we whittled down their definition as people who foretold Christ. In art, they're always pointing to Christ. Well, yes, no. <laughs> the, the exact phrases of the prophets that are foretelling Christ, I bet they're not more than 2%. Mm. So what's all the rest of that verbiage? Now then, when Protestants came along with no good teaching from their ancestors, they got caught up in that robe thing and angry thing and, uh, yes, truth speaking, because they needed some truth speaking for them. But they never got, for the most part, beyond the dualistic anger, which is how almost every prophet starts talking. He's pissed off at the injustice. Forgive the language. My mother would be mad. <laughs> <laughs> the injustices, the lies of two groups, the royals, the kings and the princes, and the priests. Mm. Now you can see why the Jews had a hard time hearing them. They're knocking their establishment, you know? So um, we didn't recognize, and I, if I could live longer, I'd, I'd still love to write this, but I, I don't have the mind for it anymore. But I encourage people who are young like you to, you go in the prophets, and you see they start with dualistic judgments. Either, like, like John the Baptist. That's why, why you know, real upset because a marriage isn't perfect. Uh, in, my, <laughs> in my opinion, that's why Jesus says, no man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. What? But the right. least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He gets off to a good start, but then he stays there with dualistic judgment. I don't think I would have joined John the Baptist Church. I really don't. <laughs> uh, it was just too rigid, too angry, too absolute. And forgive me, that's why he says John had to go. 
but he got us off to a good start. The truth speaking. Now, here's my point. If you stay with each of the prophets, you will get to these later chapters, these later verses, where they talk more about infinite love. Uh, the best example, O.C. gets toward it pretty early. Isaiah, second Isaiah, already gets to love early. But Habakkuk, he waits till the last three verses. You get tired of him. You just want to close the book of Habakkuk, yelling at me, yelling at me. And he's yelled for three chapters. And so you never get to the last three verses. And where he says, you remember, God will treat you as hinds feet on high places, leaping across the mountaintops in the middle of grace and forgiveness. That's a paraphrase. You have to read the whole tirade. Now, uh, Protestants got lost in the tirade because they didn't have a strong mystical tradition except with people like Howard Thurman and, you know, Harriet Tubman, yes. You know, she's a prophet. But she ends up not an angry woman, but a loving woman, doing the works of love and service. Same with Howard Thurman. You've got to read the entire book of each prophet and um, recognize he or she does not stay in the dualistic anger. No man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is universal love, is greater than John. Jesus said that, his cousin. (laughs) The least in the kingdom of God is greater than my cousin, John the Baptist, because he got trapped in anger. And this is important today for those of us of a liberal, progressive persuasion. Because I'm meeting far too many who are angry people, who are cynical people. And they're, they belong to the Church of John the Baptist, not the Church of Jesus. Mm, very profound. <laughs> very profound. It took me much of my life to figure that out. But once you see it, it's obvious. Father Richard, talk to me about gazing. Oh, you're so, you ask such good questions. I'm a doer, you know. I'm a uh, on the Enneagram. I'm a three with a four wing. I want it to be a nine, but oh. I'm a three with a four wing. Oh, but see, you're connected to the nine. Oh, okay. three nine six, and your six is your loyalty to the tradition, mm. to the scriptures. Yeah. I'm kind of a doer. I'm an I'm action most of the time, except when I'm making myself center and contemplate. When I first heard you describe gazing, I wondered, how, I mean, how do you get into that portal? But the more you talked about it, the more I understood that awe is the highest form of prayer. Talk talk to the, our listeners about about this thing called gazing. No, I don't know if it's my old age. I don't know if it's my sickness. I'm carrying a number of sicknesses. Uh, But in the last, I'd say, two years, it started here in my backyard. I've got four huge cottonwood trees. And on summer days, there's a chair underneath one of them that I put there. And uh, I just go sit there. And I don't read theology anymore. I spent too many years doing that. I mean, I loved it. It it allowed me to become a teacher, I guess. But I just found myself looking, looking at the trees, at the leaves, at the grass, at the lizards. I'm in New Mexico, so we have a lot of cute little lizards. My dog, Opie, doesn't like them, but uh, they're really rather cute. And just seeing things in their isness, their being. Why that lizard? Now, here, for me, I guess. 
I bet no human eye will ever notice that little lizard. And then I start being very grateful for it. Uh, I don't have to think anymore. In fact, thinking gets in the way. And that was the disadvantage of being a preacher most of my life. And I'm sure you've had to face this, that your prayer becomes prep time for your sermons. Yes. <laughs> you can't help it. You just can't help it. God understands. But I don't preach anymore. Well, I guess I am now, but not very much. I don't preach in the church here. And so I don't have to formulate ideas. I just gaze. What's happened in the last six months is I sort of come to, when I've been gazing for a while, not thinking, and I noticed one day, now I'm going to do it and it's going to look real stupid, but my mouth was like this. And I only knew it, I couldn't feel it, but when I stuck my finger in, well, why is your mouth open, Richard? <laughs> now, now it's all the time. That after I gaze, I don't know at what point I switch from the gaze to the open mouth. But it, it's almost every time I pray. Mm. And to the students last month, when well, you were there, Barbara, yes. I called it being gobsmacked. Is yes. that a word? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> it came to me right there. My <laughs> prayer ends by being gobsmacked. And it's not like I'm seeing an apparition of Jesus or knowing any great truth, but it's just, I don't need to know anymore. This is more than enough. Mm. Just stay right here, Richard. And so I shut my mouth and Opie and I come back to my house here. And I know I've prayed, but it took my whole life to get there. It isn't saying prayers. It isn't thinking prayers. It's finally being a prayer where my cells seem to be praying. And please don't think I'm extraordinary. <laughs> that was the meaning of the gift of tongues, that everybody could join in. <laughs> mm, we can all gaze. Well, yeah, How it wonderful. wasn't just the holy people or the worthy yeah. people or the sinless people because there aren't any. We are coming up on, on an hour, and this has been such a rich experience. I want to tell you something about how you've affected my life, and then I'm going to let um, Donnie wrap us up. You have deeply affected me, uh, my prayer life, everything, because what you did was you helped me to ease all the disconnects between spirit and mind that I readily adopted in academia. Oh, yeah. Academia does that. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And I loved it. I loved it. I spirit. did, too. I'm grateful <laughs> for my education. Yeah, but spiritually, there was no wholeness. There was no way to bring those pieces together. And I've really found through your work and through enhancing my contemplative life that I am a more whole person. Not whole yet but at least on the path toward a more united being, a more whole being. Um, thank you for allowing me to share my meager offerings within your community of the Center of Action and Contemplation. It's our privilege to have you. And we have to get you here, Donnie, someday. I will be on the first plane down to Albuquerque, so. <laughs> well, God bless you both. Thank you. God bless you. God, this has been such a great uh, hour of conversation, discussion, reflection, um, and I would have to say transformation. Thanks to you too. Thank you. I need good people to bring good ideas out of my mouth ever talking. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. 
we'd like to leave you with a few reflections on our conversation with Father Richard Rohr. What I loved about um, the conversation was his honest talk about love. That word gets thrown around so much. And um, he basically was just saying, it's not just supposed to be an aspirational ideal. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be embodied. Yeah. It's supposed to stand up for the least and speak truth to power. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole different concept of love. It is. To even take it further, our, 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 one of the pieces that really stuck out to me too in connection with his reimagining of love was his the conversation that we had about about certitude and faith yes um, and it, it is a function of love when you really look at it from that perspective but we he, he defined you know the opposite of faith is not doubt but the opposite of faith is certitude as he stated um and, and I do think that understanding it from that perspective, Dr. B, really helps us to, to redefine faith, as you indicated, with love. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of Father Richard Ward's work really is about reimagining, um, yes, helping us yes. to really um, look through a lens, in a, you know, look through a different lens. And I, I really appreciate the conversation. Very insightful if you will. Yeah, it's, it was wonderful for me to finally get an insight into something I had been wondering about, and that was how the Franciscans were so comfortable with uh, with minority issues and standing up for minorities. Yeah. And for him to talk about the fact that, you know, um, they understand that the mainstream isn't main at all. It's just yeah. dominant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and that phrase that he used, wow, when you can't see Christ in others, you can't see Christ in yourself. Wow. I just, uh, that kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? it? It does. It does. It does. And, you know, even as he defined the concept of Christ as the archetype, as the, yes. the blueprint, right, for for everything, the universal blueprint. And and I love that. I mean, it does speak to that. If you can't see that blueprint in others, how can you see that blueprint in yourself? Well, we certainly have our work cut out because that means that we have to see Christ in uh, Putin. <laughs> we have to see Christ in those people we consider to be our enemies and our oppositions. This loving thing looks like it's going to be a full-time job. It does. It does. I, I think that what really summarized this idea of full time is as he ended the conversation about his time at his home, sitting outside in his chair, gazing, yes. if you will, mm-hmm. uh, at nature, gazing at his surroundings. And he happened to discover that his mouth was just open in the form of awe, mm-hmm. as if he was finally comprehending and experiencing the true universal awesomeness of the oneness of all creation. And his body just responded in awe. And him articulating that at this season of his life really was inspiring, was very insightful, because it it gives us insight to, you know, what may be to come and what maturity could potentially look like right as we begin to experience that awesomeness that oneness um in the amazement of you know what what the creator is really doing all around us yeah you really can't leap from where we are right now to uh this expansive idea of love but you know what we can do we can do what father richard does we can go into nature we Mm -hmm. can sit and we can gaze, we can allow this Christ-soaked world to infuse us and mm-hmm. to to awaken us to something within yeah. that will also awaken that love. Great conversation, Donnie. So to our listeners, I ask you, how can you find the Christ in the community that you're connected to? How can you see the Christ and the relationships or the surroundings that are around you.
Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.